Now, we are especially delighted tonight to have the Reverend John Greer. He's very, very busy, much in demand at this time. And when I phoned him, he very kindly accepted to come here this evening and preach on the subject of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And we could really say, and I'm sure he, he'll agree and he'd tell us, that this is the most important doctrine in the whole of the Christian church. I believe that because this goes to the heart of how a man can be right with God. And without the understanding of this doctrine, that there's really no relationship with God, certainly the God of the Bible. And I did send out a text last night, and for those who got it later on, I appreciate your appearance this evening. Uh, I, I sent out um, the text at 12 o'clock, or maybe just before it, after praying and reading, and feeling so burdened for the meeting tonight, and I half expected to see most of the seats filled up, and I have to say I'm slightly disappointed that we're not. But thank you for coming, those of you who made the effort. And we just pray the Lord will bless the Reverend Greer as he preaches this very important doctrine to us. Thank you. Well, a word of thanks to Mr. McLaughlin for the kind invitation to come along and, and minister tonight and tomorrow night in the will of the Lord in this week of meetings in relation to uh, the great subject of the Reformation and all that, that means to us. And we trust the Lord will bless us. We're glad to be here. Keep us in prayer. And as your minister has mentioned, my sister was involved in an accident yesterday evening along with her husband. He's okay, but she's quite seriously ill in the Royal and ICU. And uh, we value your prayers at this time that the Lord would touch her and raise her up again Amen. for his own glory. And so we turn to Galatians chapter 2, the book of Galatians chapter 2, and I want to read from that chapter beginning at the verse number 11, Galatians chapter 2 and the verse number 11, and we will read together from that verse right down to the close of this great chapter. Uh, may the Lord draw very near and help us as we read his word, as we even think about the words as we go through, verse by verse, in the Bible reading. And may the Lord bless his word to our hearts. So Galatians chapter 2, and verse number 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come... He withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners are the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ 
and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for of righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And we know that the Lord will bless the reading of this his own precious word. Now again we will bow in prayer for a moment. We need the Lord's help and we want just to lift up our hearts again to the throne of grace. We could not pray enough and we need to look to the Lord for his help at this point. Our Father in heaven, we bow before thee. We think of the great hymn with which the meeting began and we rejoice tonight that Christ is our righteousness. And we can say, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. And Lord, we thank thee that thou dost accept sinners for the sake of Christ's righteousness. We thank thee for that provision that he has made through his life and in his death. And we rejoice that there is a righteousness that is perfect upon the grounds of which, as we rest in Christ, we are justified freely from all things. Mm. And so, Lord, bless us, we pray. We know we deal with a vast subject. We deal with uh, a matter that, as thy servant has said, is at the very heart of the gospel and is the test of whether a church is true or false. Oh, Lord, how we pray that thou wilt help us to understand the doctrine, help us to defend the doctrine, help us, O oh Lord, to cherish what it presents to us and rejoice in it. And, O oh Lord, we long and pray that there might come a great awakening in the communities around us, across our land, across our nation, where we realize that men are blinded by false doctrine, by dead works, and have no awareness, no understanding of their need as sinners and of the remedy of God in Jesus Christ. Mm. O Lord, awaken people, we pray, and bring a moving of God in great measure in these days. So hear us now, give help at this moment and right through the rest of this time. <coughs> may thy name be glorified, may Christ be exalted, for we pray in his name and for his sake and for, for his eternal glory. Amen. 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 <coughs> In Acts chapter 15, there is the record of a gathering of the apostles and elders of the church of Jesus Christ. It is essentially, I won't say this for any biased reason, but it is essentially a meeting of the presbytery of those days when men of God came together. They gathered to resolve a doctrinal controversy that had arisen in the church at Antioch on the issue of the sinner's personal 
justification. The resolution that they sought was reached and that resolution was that the Gentile converts of those times did not have to become subject to the Jewish ceremonial law in order to be justified. That was what was being presented. That was the false teaching that was being spread abroad in those times. And that decision brought great joy and consolation to the gathered assembly in Jerusalem as well as to the churches of Jesus Christ who were then informed of the decision and the outcome of that great time of discussing this most important matter. However, at a later point, as this chapter shows us, Peter, who had figured so prominently in that Jerusalem council, visited Antioch, and a controversy, a fresh controversy arose over his refusal to fellowship with Gentile converts. He had it first, but then he declined from doing so at a certain point. That was due to the fear that he had in his heart, that arose in his heart, of those who uh, continued to insist that the Gentiles should not come under the ceremonial law if they were to be accepted within the church and, even more importantly, if they were to be accepted by God. And that insistence that the Gentiles were to uh, subject themselves to ceremonial uh, teaching and to the ceremonial law if they were to be accepted by God was an attack on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And Peter's action meant that he was giving credence to this serious er error. That situation could not be tolerated, and therefore you will find that the Apostle Paul, with great courage and out of love for Jesus Christ and the gospel and the church of Christ, confronted and rebuked Peter for what he had done, for what he was doing, in that situation over a period of time in the city of Antioch among those who gathered there as the Lord's people. And so what you find is that from verse 14 right down to verse 21, there is a record of what Paul said to Peter at Antioch. You will observe in those verses as I read them that the apostle Paul speaks in what is called the first person. That's signified by the words I and we, the, plur the singular pronoun I and the plural pronoun we. Those pronouns are found the whole way down through these verses. And therefore Paul is recording his conversation with Peter or his uh, actual debate with Peter, a better way to put it. He confronted Peter to the face. He began to speak to him and show him where he had gone wrong. And he therefore gives us a record of what he actually said to his colleague, the Apostle Peter, on this occasion where he is seeking to deal with the mistake that Peter had made and correct his brother. He does it in love. He does it because he has a burden for clarity and for a true understanding of the gospel or of justification among the Lord's people. And let me tell you something. Peter appreciated what Paul did because you will find in Peter's second epistle toward the end of it that he calls Paul 
our beloved brother Paul. That was years later on. And so there was no resentment. There was no anger on Peter's part. He was glad that Paul, as we say, had set him straight. And we should be glad as well that the Apostle Paul set his brother straight in this matter in order for the well-being of the Galatian churches to, who, to whom he writes at this time and he records this incident in order to show to these Galatians who were also in danger of, facing, of embracing a false gospel that they were making the very same mistake as Peter. And so keep in mind what the book of Galatians really is all about. It is a defense of the doctrine of justification. That's where it differs from the book of Romans. Romans is also about justification, largely speaking. But the book of Romans is written from the perspective of expounding the doctrine of justification. Explaining it. But the book of Galatians is written from the perspective of defending this great doctrine, because it has to be defended, not once, not twice in church history, but over and over again. Now, one of the vital issues with which Paul confronted Peter was the issue of the role of faith in the sinner's justification. He made it very, very clear in what he said to Peter, there cannot be any justification of any sinner except through faith alone. Notice the words that he uses in verse number 16, in the center of that verse, it says, even we, notice the emphasis, even we, that is Peter, you and I, as Jews, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ or through faith in Christ, is what that means, and not by the works of the law. Paul is essentially saying here, to Peter. Peter, you and I who are Jews by birth were justified by faith alone. We were not justified by the works of the law. Indeed, this man, Peter, had stood up in the Jerusalem assembly and he had spoken of the works of the law as a burden that neither they, that is the apostles, or their fathers were able to bear. And now Paul's reminding Peter of that very important matter that he and Peter as Jews had been justified not by the works of the law but by faith in our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And therefore his point is why should it be any different for the Gentiles? And therefore the particular thrust of Paul's argument at the point in verse 16 where he speaks in this way, is just this, that there must be no doubt over this issue that men are justified by faith alone. Now Paul's emphasis on this matter of being justified by faith alone is the plain teaching of all Scripture with regard to this matter of a man's acceptance with God. And on the basis of Scripture... It is therefore the teaching of the historic Protestant confessions that justification is by faith only. At the time of the Reformation, the precise nature and 
the precise meaning of justification was clarified. The Church of Rome, as you will well know, I am sure, had shrouded and had veiled in error this vital, this basic tenet of the gospel by teaching, as she still does, that justification is based on baptism and is secured through the religious works that sinners perform. That, in a nutshell, is what Rome has taught for hundreds of years. At the time of the Reformation, that was her teaching. It's her teaching today. Baptism is where justification begins. And then it is enhanced and it is furthered and it is established, supposedly, as a result of the works of the individual who has been baptized and in baptism has been regenerated according to Rome and has given, therefore, the grace to obey the church's rituals and ceremonies and work up merit with God and favour with God and as a consequence hopefully be justified because Rome can never tell her people you have now done enough and therefore you are now justified. And so... Through their study of the word of God, the reformers saw and they exposed the unscriptural nature of Rome's dogma on justification. And so their teaching and their preaching and in their writings, it was all a presentation of the clarion call that justification is by faith alone, through grace alone and by Christ alone. However, it is a fact in the light of biblical and church history, that the doctrine of justification needs constant clarification. It is the devil's objective and desire to bring this doctrine into continual confusion and continual mystery, so that in one way or another, the devil succeeds in having men focus on themselves and on their own works. And in doing so, they seek to be justified as a result of their own performances and all that they do of a religious or a spiritual nature. May I say tonight at this stage, just to bring this home to you, that the devil's always seeking to confuse this doctrine of justification. That it is an alarming fact that in many evangelical churches, never mind liberal churches, where there's no belief of the gospel really at all, but in some evangelical churches, the claim is set forth that the, the child of God uh, is justified by his or her faith. You might say, is that not true? Are we not justified by faith? What they mean is this that the believer's faith merits justification? You maybe heard the words that people are justified on account of their faith. And my friend, that sounds fine, that sounds very good, but let me tell you something, it is completely wrong. It's completely unscriptural. We are not justified on account of our faith. We are justified on account of the resurrect of the, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there's a world of difference. And you see, when 
that notion is embraced, we're justified on account of our faith, you will find that then Christians, people who profess the name of the Lord, they're continually examining their faith. They're looking in, into their own hearts. And they're trying to analyze and assess their faith and, and say, well, my faith is strong. My faith is vibrant. And therefore, I must be right with God. And what they're doing is they're basing their hope of being accepted by God on the strength of their faith or the clarity of their faith or the understanding that their faith contains in these areas. And so they base their assurance of salvation upon how strong their faith is or how clear their faith is. But you can maybe think of the problem that brings because, my dear friend, faith at sometimes is very weak. Your faith goes up and down. The cloudy day, I mean spiritually speaking, when the sun is not shining and the devil's attacking you and the world is suppressing you and your own sinful heart is discouraging you and in those times your faith can wane and sink very, very low and if you're believing that you're justified on account of your faith when that dark, cloudy day comes, spiritually speaking, then I will guarantee you that you will have no assurance whatsoever that you're a child of God. And that's the outcome of that particular error, and it is an error, of teaching that we are justified on account of our faith. Now I say this just to illustrate the point. The devil is always busy in order to confuse the doctrine of justification and, con and confuse Christians with regard to this particular doctrine. And so we need to come and look at it tonight, and that's my uh, allotted task. I do it joyfully. I don't want to sound as if it's some kind of a heavy uh, drudgery. It is a glorious doctrine. Amen. It's the heart of the gospel. And when we understand this doctrine, then our hearts are thrilled as the heart of Isaiah was in regard to that verse that our brother read where Isaiah rejoices that he is clothed in the garments of salvation and in the robe of righteousness. And there you have a man who lived seven, eight hundred years before Jesus Christ was ever born. And he had grasped and he'd understood the doctrine of justification. And in it he was rejoicing with all his soul. To begin with, we need to understand the meaning of the word justified. Now you will find that the word is used down this passage in different verses. And so Paul is addressing Peter with regard to the issue of a person's justification before God. He uses the word. He uses the term. His words indicate that to be justified is the great need of men before God and how true that is. That awareness of this need, it is expressed by the scriptures in different places such as the words of Bildad when he said in Job 25 verse 4, How then can man be justified with God? A very searching question and a very pertinent question and one that's unchanging in its solemn emphasis because it is really stating that left to himself is impossible for a man to be justified with God or before God because guilty fallen man is unable to do what is required of him 
in order to be justified. So being justified is the great need of sinners. And before we can grasp, however, the depth of that need and the reality of that need, we must understand the word. That's where we start. And so what does the word mean? Well, the word justified means to declare or to pronounce righteous. It's a word that signifies that when a man is justified, and remember it's God who justifies the sinner, there's a change in his legal position before God. The word justified, or that's the verb, uh, and there's different forms, or the noun, justification. Whatever way you take the terms of Scripture, this is what they mean, to be pronounced righteous before God, to be declared legally accepted by God. And that means that the word justification has absolutely nothing to do with our moral or our spiritual condition before God, but rather has to do with our legal position before God. There's a great difference between legal position and spiritual condition. Oh, spiritual condition is important. And moral condition is important. And we want to have an understanding of that as well. But that's where we study sanctification. We're dealing here with justification. And it is entirely and completely a legal change that we're dealing with. That we're talking about. That the Bible sets before us. Now, the Old Testament term to justify. We find, if you'll turn over with me to Deuteronomy 25. And look at verse number 1. Please turn to that verse. Deuteronomy 25 and the verse number 1. And the Old Testament term to justify means to make the legal announcement that a person's judicial position, legal position, is in harmony with the demands of the law of God. Deuteronomy 25 verse 1. Let's look at this verse. If there be a controversy between men... And they come on to judgment, that the judges may judge them. Then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Now here is an Old Testament verse where you find the word justify. And notice here that it's a courtroom setting. There's a controversy between two men. And they come to judgment. They go to the court. In those Bible times long ago, the court actually sat in the gate of the city. There's where it was convened. And therefore, the elders came together and they were the judges. And they heard the case and they looked at the evidence and they examined the whole matter, the controversy that had arisen. And it was all brought to the place of judgment. And it says the judges, that the judges may judge them. Notice that. That the judges may judge them. And then it says, they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Now, those are the vital words at the end of the verse. They shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And notice that the two words, justify, or sorry, the, the two words, uh, that are used here, justify and condemn, are employed in such a way as to show that the justifying of the righteous, that is the man who's not guilty, the man who hasn't done anything wrong, that the justifying of the righteous is a legal matter. In the controversy we're told here that the wicked man, the guilty party, he's condemned. 
by this group of men who meet for judgment. You see, imagine what's going on here. It's very obvious. The wicked man has brought a false charge against a man who's not guilty of any wrong in this situation. And you see, that means that the wicked man is the man who's really the guilty party. And when the judges examine the whole matter and analyze it, this is what they discover. That the righteous party in the controversy is to be cleared of any charge whatsoever. Whereas the guilty man, he is to be condemned. Now my dear friend, you just focus on those words, to condemn the wicked. Just stay there. And you will notice right away that this is purely and completely a legal matter. The man is wicked. Yes, that's right. That means he's morally corrupt. He's a wicked man. He's an evil person. But they're dealing with a charge that he has brought. A charge is a legal issue. It comes to the judges. That's a legal setting. The judgment takes place Everything about these words are forensic or legal. And the outcome is that the man who is described here as the righteous man, the man who has not done anything wrong, he is justified by the judges. Now, does that mean that those judges caused that good man, that man who did nothing wrong, to become better morally speaking? No, it means nothing of the sort. It simply means their verdict was, this man is clear of guilt. This man is clear of condemnation. But the other fellow who brought the legal charge and was found out to be a liar, that's essentially what's going on here. He is condemned, which is a legal word, isn't it? And it means, therefore, that he went that day to that courtroom and the outcome was that he left that courtroom. Maybe he was sent to prison. We don't know what happened to him. But he left that courtroom scene as a man who was guilty and a man who was condemned. And therefore, the whole wording of this, of this verse makes it absolutely clear that in the Old Testament, the word to justify has to do with making a legal pronouncement about a person's legal judicial position that is in harmony with the demands of the law of God. And so the terms here cannot be understood in a moral sense. Otherwise, Deuteronomy 25 verse 1 teaches an absurdity. Namely, the person who morally improves the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Turn over to Proverbs, please. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse number 15. Because here we have another verse where you find the words that we're looking at here, the word justifying, and the it turns. Proverbs 17 and verse number 15. It says, He that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. Now in this verse, it is very clear that the expression, he that justifieth the wicked, is used in a legal sense, as is the term condemn of the just. The terms cannot be understood, as I said about Deuteronomy 25, in a moral sense. Not at all. Look at it again. Proverbs 17, verse 15. He that justifieth the wicked. Now, if you justify a wicked man, 
You do not change his moral condition or his spiritual condition. You're saying something about that man with regard to his legal position. So if someone comes along and justifies a wicked man, it means that that person who is wicked, a pronouncement's been about him. It's false, of course, because he's been justified while he remains a wicked man. But it's a false pronouncement. He shouldn't be justified. He shouldn't be declared righteous because he is a wicked man. Then it goes on to say in the same verse, and he that condemneth the just, he that condemneth the just, that man's already just. And therefore, if he is condemned, a mistake has been made. Indeed, a great error has been made. That just man is condemned falsely, without a foundation, without any basis for doing so. And so the words here make it absolutely clear that the verb to justify in the Old Testament has to do with a person's acceptance before the demands of the law of God. Notice that, Christian, and mark that, because that is the very the, the vital thing about justification. It deals with us, it views us, in the light of the law of God. Now what does the law of God demand of you and me? It demands perfect obedience. And unless we can give the law perfect obedience, we can never be pronounced just. There's a remedy for that, of course. And we'll see that a little later. But we are looking here at us, at sinners, in the light of God's holy law. And God's holy law demands perfection. And until that perfection is given, then no man can be declared just in the light and in the view of God's law. Let's go to the New Testament now. We can't look at every verse there may be to be considered in this study on the word justify or justification. We just take a few. So we go now to Romans chapter 8. And look at verses 33 and 34. And that's what it says here in verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Now isn't that legal language? Laying a charge to someone, bringing a condemnation against an individual. And so Paul is dealing with the great issue that the child of God cannot be charged before God's law, so as to be condemned again after being justified. That's what he's dealing with. And so he goes on to say in verse 33, it is God that justifieth. And then he goes on to say in verse 34, who is he that condemneth? Can a child of God ever again be brought to the point where a charge can be laid against him so that he is then Freshly condemned. And Paul's answer, of course, by inference is absolutely not. But look at what's going on here. In verse number 33, it says, Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Then the next question, Who is he that condemneth? Now the word condemneth is what you call the antithesis or the opposite of the word justifies. Who shall enter into the charge of God's life? God 
justifies. And then the challenge goes out. Who can condemn the justified man? And so the point is that condemnation can only be a legal matter. Therefore, the same is true of justification. And so condemnation is a pronouncement of the judge about a person on the basis of that person's guilt. The breaking of God's law. That's why we are condemned. That's why God can say to us that we are unjust. That is why we deserve eternal punishment. That is why the legal sentence that comes from the courtroom of God is that every member of the human race should be banished to the lowest hell immediately. That's what condemnation is all about. Sinners deserve and will receive the due punishment because condemnation is a pronouncement of the judge of all the earth about man and his sin, that man is guilty. Think of Romans 3 and the verse number 20 where Paul comes to the great climax of his discussion of man's sin and he says so clearly in that verse that all the world is guilty. All the world is guilty. You and I are guilty and every other member of the human race we are condemned by the judge of all the earth but my dear friend conversely when the judge of all the earth says a man is justified that is a legal matter that means he's been pronounced righteous that means he's no longer guilty that means he never come under the curse of the law that means the curse has been lifted and the condemnation has been removed and now and forever irreversibly and eternally he is justified he is declared righteous and it will never ever change look with me at that great event that you find in Luke chapter 18 and verses 13 and 14 Luke 18 verse number 13 where you have the parable of the publican along with the Pharisee and they've gone up to the temple up to the house of God and you know the parable well and I firmly believe this parable, like so many of the Lord's parables, is based on a true story. And so he talks about two men. These two men really lived. They went up to Jerusalem, to the house of God, to pray. And without going into any more detail, let's look at the publican. Verse 13, the end of the verse, here's his prayer. God be merciful to me. The sinner, it says in the original language. And here's the great statement of Jesus Christ. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. And in that statement, he went down to his house justified. The use and the form of the verb justified means that in the temple where he prayed the prayer. And in the very moment when he prayed the prayer. This publican was fully, instantaneously and irreversibly declared just or righteous by God. And we have the words of our Saviour, who ye is the judge of all the earth in the coming day. And he says, I tell you, I give you my verdict. I make the pronouncement about this man, this publican, that he left the temple that day already a justified man and went down to his house 
a justified man. That leads me to this. We looked at the word here to some degree, and you know, much more time could be spent in doing that, but get it tonight. It's a legal term. It has to do with your position before God, either as condemned or just. We're condemned by our sin. If we're going to be in heaven, we need the pronouncement made by God about us that we are just. And underline that in your mind. Because justification is actually what God declares. It is God that justifies. Romans 8, 34, or 33. It's God that justifies. It's God who makes the declaration. And that's so important. And so, this is the meaning of the word justified. Let me show you this. That sinners, secondly, are justified through Christ's righteousness. Now go back to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, notice in verse number 16 where Paul uh, declares to Peter that a man is not justified by the works of the law, that is on the basis of those works, rather as he states, by the faith of Christ. Romans, or sorry, Galatians 2 and verse number 16. It says, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And that expression, the faith of Jesus Christ, simply means faith that is placed in Jesus Christ. And you will notice how that is borne out and what Paul goes on to say in the next part of the verse. Even we, that is you and I, Peter, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. So the faith of Christ is a, is a grammatical structure that you have there that signifies that Christ is the object of true saving faith. Do you understand that, Christian? In whom did you put your faith? In order to be right with God. You placed your faith. Or the, rather the faith God gave you. You placed it in Christ. He's the object of that trust. That confidence. And that faith. And so. Here the Apostle Paul. Is speaking of the basis. The foundation. Of a sinner's justification. And he makes it very clear. It's not our own works. It's Christ. In whom we trust. In whom our faith rests. And so on that ground, a sinner is declared righteous only because of Christ, which simply means Christ provides the righteousness that is the foundation or the basis upon which God declares a man to be just. I remember reading a sermon of Spurgeon's many years ago and I've never forgotten a statement that I found in that sermon. And it was this. He said, dig down through a man's justification and you will come to the righteousness of Christ. And so my dear friend, here is the foundation of our justification. Here is the basis upon which God can declare us righteous, justify us before his law and in his own sight and not compromise or not adulterate his own holiness. See, this is, this is the thing. Here am I, a mass of sin, transgressions and corruption. How can God ever say about me or about you as a child of God, that man, that woman is now just, I declare that person to be righteous and irreversibly so. 
How can God do that? There has to be a basis for it. Because again I say to you, God will not compromise his own holiness. He will not declare us to be righteous or just unless first of all there's a satisfaction of his own holiness and his own justice. Now holiness and justice go together. They're different but they're inseparably connected. What is holiness? Well holiness is the purity that is found in the character or the being of God. He is absolutely and gloriously holy. There is none holy as the Lord. And because God is holy, then God is just. What is God's justice? God's justice is that attribute by which he deals with men in their sin. Who have broken his law. Who have violated his law. And therefore are transgressors of his law. And out of God's holiness, he must, he must condemn the sinner. And he does condemn the sinner. And yet at the same time, he forgives sinners. He cleanses sinners. He justifies sinners. How can both be true? How can God's own holiness and justice remain intact? Yet at the same time, he justifies the ungodly. He declares them to be righteous. How can that be? And the answer, of course, is Jesus Christ has provided, procured for us a righteousness that is perfect so that there is the justification of the sinner. There's a great statement in Romans chapter 10. It's in verse number 4, and it's this. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now stay with me uh, concerning those words from over two, because this is very, very important. Christ, Romans 10, 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now the word for means unto righteousness. And so in a certain sense, the Lord Jesus Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness. That means in order to provide righteousness. And so what we're finding here is that there's a need for righteousness. We need this righteousness in order to be justified. And Jesus Christ is the source of that righteousness. So take the word end. Christ is the end of the word, uh, the end of the law for righteousness. And the word end signifies completion, perfection, fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment of the law unto righteousness in order to provide righteousness is what the words actually mean. And so Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, met all its demands, and therefore the outcome is there's a perfect righteousness for the likes of you and me that is then freely bestowed on us as we rest in Jesus Christ alone. Now, understand, brother or sister, what the Lord actually did when he fulfilled the law. What does that mean? He's the end of the law. What, what parts of the law or, or what aspects of the law are in view here? And my answer is simply this, the entire law. Yes. The whole law. 
Remember what James says. That the man who breaks the law on one point is guilty of it all. You know this where, where people, and we need to pity them and pray for them, Roman Catholic or otherwise, this is where people make the great mistake. They say, whether to themselves or to others, and I haven't done this, and I haven't done that, or I've done the other, and they preen themselves and they say, this is wonderful. God is bound to be very pleased with me. And he's bound to accept me on the basis of my performances. That's really what they're saying. But they forget what the word of God says. That if we break the law just in one point, we're guilty of it all because the law is a unit. And therefore the law being the reflection of the very nature and character of God is violated by men continually and uh, in a manner that is uh, that has left them completely devoid of any righteousness and of any merit and furthermore of any ability to satisfy that law that they have broken. And what they need therefore is a substitute. And this is where the work of Christ comes in. And so in a sinless life, the Lord obeyed the law's preceptive demand. The law says to us, do this and don't do that. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. And on both sides of the equation, whether it's the sin of commission or the sin of omission, we have broken the law. You know your own heart. You know your own life. And you hang your head with shame. And deep with horror. Because you realize, child of God, that if you were getting what you truly deserve, as I speak tonight, and I include myself in this, hell would open up and swallow you completely. Because we have broken the law time without number. And yet Christ has come and Christ has taken that law and Christ has obeyed it perfectly. And then he went to the cross and the suffering of Jesus Christ was actually the culmination of his obedience to that law because on the cross he took the law's penalty which is death in every sense physical and spiritual and eternal death. He took the last penalty and he suffered that penalty. He was cut off from God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He died physically, but before he ever died physically, hell descended on Christ's soul. That's what happened in the three hours of darkness. That's what was going on. It was Jesus Christ and his soul enduring the pains of hell in the sense that in those three hours, because he is the God-man, he actually suffered the equivalent of an eternity in hell for every one of his people. And so... The law in his sinless life is fulfilled and the law in his atoning death is satisfied 
And so Christ is the end of the law and is so in order to provide righteousness. And that's why Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 23, 6, said so long ago, Jehovah Zekenu, the Lord our righteousness. So we have seen what the word means to be declared righteous. But we've now seen there has to be a basis upon which God does declare a man righteous. And that basis is the perfect obedience of Christ. Did you ever have a look at that verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, where the Lord Jesus Christ is called the last Adam? That's one of his names. Why is he called the last Adam? It's telling us that there's a, a connection between Christ and Adam, the first Adam, the man in the garden. So you have the first man, Adam. Then you have Christ, the last Adam. Why are they brought together? Why, why is there this connection? Because the first Adam failed. The first Adam was the representative of the entire human race. And the first Adam broke the law. That was written on his very soul by Almighty God. Adam knew the law. And Adam broke that law. And brought in sin and brought in the curse. But along comes the last Adam. And he takes that same law. And remember what he said. Thy law is within my heart. I come to do thy will. Oh my God, he takes that same law and he obeys it fully and perfectly and completely. Oh my friend, this is a wonderful and a glorious truth. That every moment of every day of the Savior's life, from the time he was born until he reached Calvary, he was keeping the law for a guilty wretch like me, a lawbreaker like me. And then on the cross, he suffered its awful penalty. God had said to Adam, in the day thou eatest thereof. In other words, in the day when you break my law, thou shalt surely die. And death came. And so Jesus Christ, being the last Adam, he must die. There's no alternative. The law must be satisfied so that justifying righteousness would come in and be found for sinners like us. Now, the final thought is this. It is by faith then, faith in Christ, that this great declaration results as God pronounces the sinner just. By faith, the sinner is justified. And as we look at these verses in Galatians 2, we can see it over and over again. Those words of the Apostle Paul, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, verse 16, that we might be justified. We have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified. What happens when a man is drawn by the Holy Spirit and is given the gift of faith and the gift of repentance? What happens? He turns to Christ. He believes in Christ. And immediately 
he receives this perfect righteousness of Christ. And God declares him to be just. In the word of God, faith, justifying faith, because faith has a justifying quality in the sense that we're looking at tonight. It's set forth under various actions. Faith is, for example, receiving. As many as received him, give he, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. So faith is receiving. Or faith is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth in me. So coming to Christ is believing on Christ. Or believing in Christ is coming to Christ. Furthermore, another one is looking. Look unto me and be ye saved. And so in the word of God, the Lord has used all these different actions to signify to us what faith is in terms of its operation. Faith is that operation, that action of receiving what's in Christ, receiving him and receiving all his righteousness in receiving him. It is running to him, looking to him, receiving him. It is resting in him. They're all used. What is really in view therefore is this. The sinner sees, I'm guilty, I'm condemned. I deserve eternal hell and I'm, I'm lost. But when God gives that man faith and he sees that Jesus Christ in his work is sufficient to save him, he goes out of himself to Christ and he rests in Christ. And in doing that through faith, that is going to Christ, he's abandoning self-merit. He's abandoning self-righteousness, so-called. He's abandoning all his own efforts in order, in order to get Christ and his righteousness. And have that righteousness as his very own and rest in the great assurance that he is then justified before a holy God. You see, the sinner is guilty. Then he sees that Christ has satisfied divine justice. The sinner is naked and exposed to the wrath of God, but then he sees that in Christ there's a covering for his soul and a covering that conceals his sin. And that's what Isaiah is saying. He hath clothed me in the garments of salvation and in the robe of righteousness. There it is in a nutshell. That's what David means when he says in Psalm 32 verse 1, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. My dear friend, Christ's righteousness covers our sin. Covers our guilt. So as never to be seen again. To be gone. And the point is that the righteousness that covers us is perfect. And therefore the law is satisfied. And divine justice is satisfied. And divine holiness is satisfied. And we go free. Our sins are forgiven. And we're accepted by God as being righteous in his sight. And we go on our way rejoicing that the Lord Jesus Christ is our righteousness. This therefore is the role. That faith 
plays in our justification. Faith is that instrument that God gives to those who are his. And he draws to himself that reaches out and takes the righteousness that is offered in Christ and provided by Christ. And in that moment, that righteousness is imputed to that sinner's account. And in the view of God and in the estimation of God, that person is declared righteous. And so, we've looked at the meaning of the word. We've looked at the foundation for our justification, the righteousness of Christ. We have seen here that it is by faith that this righteousness is received. It's actually called in Romans 5, the gift of righteousness. You have come to the Lord, you are saved, his people, God's dear people. Understand this clearly. Understand that when you rested in Christ, immediately Christ's righteousness was transferred to your account and God declared you just. That's what happened. It wasn't that something happened inside you. That's different. Or oh, there is something that happens inside us, in our souls. Justification takes place in the mind of God, it's a declaration about you. And it's made on the foundation of the Lord's righteousness, which is received by faith alone. And so we can say with top lady, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, Another's life, another's death, I rest my whole eternity. My friend, you can do so without any hesitation. Rest in Christ and his righteousness is yours. God declares you just. And he loves you. And he sees you in Christ. He sees you as he sees a son. He loves you as he loves a son. He accepts you as he accepts a son. What a thrill. What a joy to the soul. May the Lord write this in our hearts and bless his word to our souls. We'll bow together and let's just pray and We'll come to a close and thank you for your time and attention tonight. It's a very vital subject and I trust that God has used his word and will use it even after the meeting is over. And Lord God, we do pray this evening that thy spirit will write the word of God upon our souls, upon our minds, and that it will be used there to deepen our understanding, to develop our appreciation of this great doctrine and what it means and what we have in Christ. Oh Lord, use it to encourage your people. Use it, Lord, to build them up and fortify them. Use it, Lord, in every feature of Christian living. For on this ground we can come to pray. On this ground we offer up our praise. Mm -hmm. 
On this ground we approach thee in worship. Lord, on this ground we can face death and face eternity. O Lord, we thank thee for an everlasting righteousness. And we pray, O Lord, that thou wilt help us to rejoice in our blessed Redeemer. Lord, with thy blessing, go with us this night. Keep thy hand upon us, we ask. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his eternal praise. Amen. Amen.